0: I want to start by asking you to imagine something with me. And I want to ask you to imagine that you're traveling in some far off distant country. And as you're off in this distant country, you start to notice that the people around you, the locals, are starting to scramble around a little bit. And there's this whispering going on. And as you're curious and trying to figure out what's going on, finally you hear through some of the mumblings and rustlings, that the king of that place is approaching. And sure enough, as you look up, you see this entourage coming. There's people blowing trumpets, and there's this carriage being carried along on the shoulders of some very strong men, with this pompous man sitting on top of this throne. And as you watch this happen, you discover... And you start to get a little bit nervous to discover that this carriage is coming your direction. And as your heart rate increases, you you come to realize that it's not only coming your direction, but it's stopping right in front of you. The king signals for this carriage to stop. If you were in that situation, what I want to ask you is, what would you do in that moment? As you look around and you notice that all of the locals are like bowed down with their faces in the dirt, what would you do? You have, I think, two reasonable options. There's one unreasonable option, which would probably be to run away screaming. Okay, so let's take that one off the table. But you're left with probably two reasonable options. One is that you would follow suit. That you would look at the example of the people around you and maybe get down on your knees. You would bow before this King. A second option would be to kind of ignore the fact that there is this king in front of you, or apparent king in front of you. You would just pretend that he's not there, that you would just kind of stay as you are and feel like, oh, I'm not going to really do anything about this. The reason I tell you this story is because I believe that this psalm, in a way, leaves us with a similar choice. And so we're going to talk about our response to Psalm 104. But before we do that, we probably should talk a little bit about what Psalm 104 actually says before we talk about our response to it. We've been doing this series where we're looking at different psalms. And by the way, a psalm means typically to most of us a song or some sort of biblical poetry. But what we're discovering as we're doing this sampling of different psalms is that there's a lot more to it than that. Some of the psalms, there's there's a lot of variety. Some of the psalms feel like uh, some sort of mentor, uh, some older, wider, wiser person putting an arm around us and giving us kind of instruction on how to live our lives. Other psalms kind of feel like some sort of jubilant celebration of a festivity that we're getting caught up in. Other psalms feel like somebody's journal, where you're like given insight into some of their dark moments and some of their struggles, where they're really honest and and even raw in what they're expressing. This particular psalm talks about nature and the world in which we live. And so as I say that, and as you've seen uh, this kind of displayed for you, and as we've heard it read out loud to us, I wanted to ask you guys, and, and this isn't a rhetorical question by the way, I want actual answers out loud if some of you are brave enough to do that, but I wanted to ask you, what are some of your favorite things in nature? So I'm not asking what are your favorite things in the world, like pizza or Ferraris, or that sort of thing. Like what I'm talking about is in, in the creation, in the nature, the natural world around us, what are some of the things that you really love in the world around us? Anybody got, got something? Yes. What did you say? Kangaroos? Hey, Ben. Yes, <laughs> I like those too. I like that, yes. Sticks, like a stick, like trees and sticks, right on, I like that. Sheep are very cool, yes. And they give us wool and sometimes tasty food, yes. What was that? Dogs, puppies in particular, okay, yes. Dolphins are very beautiful, yes. Lauren? Animals in general, isn't there such variety amongst all the animals? I mean, if you think about it, everything from, like, a whale to, like, a little baby monkey, like, yeah, it's crazy. Up the back. Tigers, yes. Powerful, strong, scary, and yet awesome. What else do you guys like in nature, in creation? Snow. Snow. Isn't it phenomenal that we can have these soft little flakes that fall from the sky? Crazy, yes. Anything else? Sunrise, I'm 100% here. This time of year, right? We see some incredible sunrises. I think they're too early other times of the year for me to actually see them. We got something on the back? Whales? Yes. So big. So, I mean, they're like these massive natural submarines, right? Yes. Lauren, come on. The ocean itself is beautiful. It doesn't... Okay, I'm going to stop there, but I like these suggestions. Isn't it incredible? Like, I mean, all around us, there are these things pointing to the beauty in this world. Now, I say that, and I think we'd all be pretty quick to acknowledge that the world is, yes, beautiful, but it's also broken. And often inside of the church... We talk about the brokenness of the world, and that's actually not a bad thing. We need to talk about that. We need to have conversations about the brokenness in the world around us. But we also do need to consider the reality that there is beauty in the world around us. And Psalm 104 helps us to lift our eyes up to actually see that. When we look at a psalm like this, when we look at any part of God's Word, it's interesting how God can speak to us. Uh, you and I, any of you, we could sit down together today and read a part of the Bible, the same part of the Bible together, and then we could talk about it. And when we talked about it, there would probably be things that I would you know, kind of see or that would resonate, that I'd say, hey, look at this, that would be different from what you see. And as we look at Psalm 104 in particular, there is a myriad, there's many different things that we could say, wow, look at this, or what about this, or this truth that God speaks to us. So today, what I want to do is actually just draw our attention to two things from this Psalm. There's many more that we could talk about, but I'm just going to talk about two things. The first thing is this, Psalm 104 points us to the reality of God. Let me say that again. Psalm 104 points us to the reality of God. This psalm reminds us that there is a God, that there is a God who actually exists. And because of that, that means that this psalm is actually really good for somebody who's wrestling to believe that there is a God. Who's wrestling and saying, well, I don't know if I believe that. Maybe somebody who's a little bit skeptical, saying... You know, is there really a God? Is there a, a, a being who created the universe? This is a really good psalm for somebody who's who's thinking about that and questioning that. Because what it does is it draws a line between what is seen and what is unseen, God. It shows us things like mountains, oceans, storms, volcanoes, birds, plants and animals, all those things that we had listed. And it says hey, these things, all these natural things, these beautiful things that you see are there, they exist and actually are held in their existence by God. The invisible God sustains the visible world. And the reason that that, this whole thing is actually really important is because most of the people that we engage with in our world and in our culture don't believe that that's true. They don't believe that, maybe a lot of them don't believe that there is a God or that He's involved in this world in which we live. Most people that we engage with, and and maybe even some of you went out to the Cantor fireworks last night. I mean, that was as many people as I've ever seen in Cantor. There were like thousands of people standing there, and what you need to understand is that most of them... Don't believe that there's a God, or don't believe that he's really involved or interested in their lives, if there is a God. What I'm saying here is that most people in the world around us are functionally either atheists or agnostics. And and maybe even some people in this room would say, I'm not sure if I believe that there's a God. And by the way, if that's any of you... We're glad that you're here. We're glad that you're here questioning that and, and even wrestling with th- these thoughts. So don't hear me boo-hooing that. Like, that's, that's actually a really great thing. Okay, so I just said they're either atheistic or agnostic. Let's just talk about these bigger words for a second. What is an atheist? An atheist is a person, this is Merriam-Webster Dictionary, a person who does not believe in the existence of God. An agnostic is a person who holds the view that any ultimate reality such as god is unknown or probably unknowable so an atheist says hey there isn't a god an agnostic person says yeah there might be a god but you know if there is he's pretty detached from this world he kind of maybe set the world in motion but now he's removed himself from this world most of the people that we engage with whether it's at school or at work or the neighbours we interact with, or even maybe extended family members, live in this headspace. And what this psalm does is it pushes strongly against both of these views of the world. It says, no, there there is a God. Just look around you, it says. Look at the nature, Look look at creation. There is a God. We're not here by chance. We were actually designed. And so it pushes against these atheistic thoughts. In a way, what it's saying to us is, hey, it actually takes more faith to believe that we just happen to be here by chance than it does to believe that there is a God who very intentionally designed everything that we see. I mean, you see some of this intentionality coming out in verses five through nine. I invite you to look at that with me. It says, He set the earth on its foundation so that it should never be moved. You And speaking of God in both senses, covered it with the deep as the garments, as with the garments. The waters stood above the mountain. At your rebuke, they fled. At the sound of your thunder, they took flight. The mountains rose and the valleys sank down to the place you appointed for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass, so that they might not again cover the earth. This is talking about God designing and working and creating the world in which we live. It's saying there is a God who very intentionally set these boundaries and made these things exist. The second thing that this psalm does is it pushes against the thought that God created, the agnostic thought, that God created the world and then walked away from it. It speaks very much about His familiarity and His involvement in the world in which we live. God, it says to us in a way, is God is a personal God. A God who is involved in his creation. If you look at verse 13, the first part of it, it says, From your lofty abode you water the mountains. I.e. God sends rain. He's even involved in the sending of rain showers. If you go on to verse 14, You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate. God is involved in the growth of blades of grass. If you go on to verse 27 and following with me it says these all these animals and even stuff in the ocean, they all look to you you excuse me to give them their food in due season. When you give it to them they gather it up and when you open your hand they are filled with good things. When you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath they die and they return to the dust and when you send forth your spirit they are created. The psalm here is giving us picture after picture after picture, pointing us to the reality of God. It's saying God exists, and He is very involved in the day-to-day running of this world and of this universe. So that's the first thing that I want for us to look at out of this psalm, the reality of God. The second thing is this, Psalm 104 points us to the perfect power of God. Let me just give you a sad truth. A sad truth is that many of us who believe in God tend to become overly comfortable and familiar with the power of God. We get used to His power. And so we read this psalm and we're like, oh yeah, God created the universe. We're not wowed. We're not in awe of that fact. When our appreciation of God's power drops so too does our awe, our wonder, and our worship. And that is not a good thing. When I was in my 20s, I owned a number of different motorcycles. Um, and, and some of them were very powerful motorcycles. And uh, I tell you that because it was an interesting thing. Whenever you would hop on one of these motorcycles that I, that I had for the first time, Typically, there would be this scary moment where you were like, wow, like, this thing is powerful and scary and dangerous and really could hurt me. Like, there would be that moment of realization. But also, what what I found would happen is, after spending a, a lot of time on one of those motorcycles, you would start to get used to the power of that motorcycle. And that was a dangerous place to be in. If you would spend a day out riding, all of a sudden you're like, oh yeah, it's not, you know, and that wasn't a good headspace to be in. And so too it's not good, it's dangerous for us to get used to the power of God. And what I see in this psalm is that it's trying to help us not to do that. In some ways, it's what I was trying to describe this psalm, I feel like it's, it's grabbing us by the shoulders and shaking us and saying, no, look how awesome God is. And so I want to put it to you, if you, if you had a dial inside of you that would, was a dial showing how much you're amazed by God, how much you're in awe of God, how much you worship God, where would that dial be right now? Are you kind of like, oh yeah, God's pretty cool, or is it like, wow, God is incredible. He's so incredible. Are you currently amazed by the power of God, by all that He is? I love the, the picture that author C.S. Lewis gives us of God in his, his Chronicles of Narnia series that he wrote. The, the animal he chooses to represent God is a lion. And when one of the main characters discovers this for the first time, they ask the question, is he safe? And the answer that one of the other characters gives is this, and I love this. They say, of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. I think that's brilliant. I think that's there's part of that that we need to latch onto and believe to be true about God. He may not be. I think sometimes we try to tame Him. We try to make Him safe. But the truth is, we need to not shrink God. We need to see Him for all that He is. We need to see that He is powerful. And not just powerful, perfectly powerful. In my first draft of writing out some things for today, I put down this point and I said, Psalm 104 points us to the power of God. But as I began to consider this more, I'm like, it's not just showing us that God's powerful, it's showing us that God is perfectly powerful. And what I mean by that, it highlights the perfection, this Psalm, of His power. It shows us, like we saw in verses 5 through 9, the boundaries that He created. How he had thought and and designed and intent to do that. If you go to verse 16, it talks about the water cycle. If you go on into verse 19, it talks about the seasons. And in verse 19 through 23, it talks about the the hours of the day and night. And how God created these things. This is God's perfection coming out. God's perfect power is wise. It's well thought out. And it holds all things together. God's perfect power. Power is perfect. Now, I can say that many times, which I already have. And you may be thinking, well, what does that actually look like? Well, I want to ask you to come back to verse 7, which we read earlier, again with me. The mountains rose and the valley sank down to the place you appointed for them. I bring these two verses to your attention in particular for three reasons. The first is this. What it's doing is it's stating that God is so powerful that when he speaks, even the elements of the universe listen to him. It's telling us that God, you know, when he speaks, that the water listens, that the earth, the rock, listens to him. In fact, it says the word, I don't know if you saw that in verse 7, it says, at your rebuke. Now, that's maybe not a language that we use too often, or maybe we do in our homes. Uh, What is a rebuke? A rebuke is a sharp criticism or reprimand. So the easiest way to display that would be if there was a young kid, which we actually had an illustration of this a minute ago, um, if there was a young kid running towards the road, what would you do? You would rebuke them. You would say, stop, don't go there. It's not safe. And what it's telling us here is that God speaks of rebuke and the rocks and the water listened to him. That's how perfectly powerful he is. But the second reason I point this out to you, this, these verses in particular, is that this thought that God's speaking and things happening should remind us of something. And that is creation. If I was to take you to Genesis, the first book in the Bible, what it tells us is that God simply spoke. And the universe was formed, that he was that powerful, that he can speak and things change and that the world was created through his words, through the power of his word. So that's the second thing it should remind us of. The third thing that it should remind us of is Jesus. As we read these words that tell us that, you know, at this rebuke, the water and the, the rocks listened. we can be reminded of Jesus because Jesus too rebuked the elements And they listen to him. There's the story of the calming of the storm, which some of you are familiar with. In fact, you find that story in three different scriptures. It's so significant. It's found in Luke chapter 8, Mark 4, and Matthew chapter 8. I'll read part of that story actually for you from Matthew 8. It says this. And when Jesus got into the boat, this is verse 23 of Matthew 8. When Jesus got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep, and they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O ye of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and was great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this? that even the winds and the sea obey him. These disciples, at least four of them, had grown up sailing on this lake. They were professional sailors. They were were fishermen. And they were terrified to the point of just reaching out to Jesus. And he awakes and he calms this storm. And they ask this question and say, what sort of man is this? And this is a question that hopefully we can answer. We can say, we know who this is. This is no ordinary man. This is God. And one of the reasons we know that is that he can speak with his perfect power and the the elements change. They listen. Jesus rebukes the winds and the sea. And what does it say? It doesn't just say that it kind of subsided the storm. It says that there was a great calm. Just like the disciples struggled to know how to respond to the reality and the perfect power of God, we too can struggle. We can even read a psalm like this one we have today, Psalm 104, and say, okay, how do we respond to that? How do we respond to all that it tells us here in this psalm? Thankfully, we don't actually have to question that too much, because the very first verse and the very last verse both tell us how we should respond. There's a repeated phrase. When something's repeated in the Bible, it's important. And there's this repeated phrase, and what it says in both of those places, first verse and last verse is what? Look at it with me. It says, bless the Lord O my soul. You'll find that in the first verse. You'll find that in the last verse. And what it's telling us is that we need to bless God. What does that word bless mean? It means to kneel. It implies that we need to adore God, that we need to kneel before Him, that we need to worship Him. When we remember the reality and the perfect power of God, our only right response is to worship. And so I want to take you now back to my opening question. I told you that kind of weird story of the king coming towards you. And I asked you, how would you respond if you were standing in front of this king? Would you ignore that king Or would you bow? What this psalm does is it reminds us that we actually are, right even now, in the presence of a king. And not just any king, the king of kings, the creator of the universe. And we're faced, even in this moment, with a choice. Will we ignore all the things that point to his reality and to his power, or will we bow? Will we humble ourselves? Will we bend our knee? And will we actually, truly worship Him? When we look at Jesus, are we going to worship? Are we going to understand all that He is and the reasons that He came? That He came to save us from our sins, the things that we think and the things that we do that do not honour God. And so, I want to encourage you with a couple of last thoughts. As much as nature can and should cause us to worship... The things that we see, whether it's these beautiful, what are we talk about? Puppies and tigers, all sorts of things. Or whether it's the sunset or the ocean and all this nature. We live in happiness It's a beautiful place. As much as those things should cause us to worship, even more so should Jesus cause us to worship. As we look at Jesus, we should be unable to do so without saying, like this son. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Again, that word bless, it simply means to worship, to kneel. What we're saying to ourselves in that is, Worship God, soul. Worship God. When you see Jesus, that's our response. And so as we close, I want to leave you with a couple of questions. The first one is this. Do you know God? We've talked about the reality of God. Do you know Him? Second question, are you bowed before him in worship? I asked you earlier about where your, if there was gauge, where is your worship level right now? Are you surrendered? Are you bowed down? Are you in awe of all that he is? And all that he's done for you, especially through Jesus? And then thirdly, what is stopping you from worshipping him right now? I'm just going to pause here for a moment and ask you to bow your heads and to consider some of those questions, and then I'll pray for them. God, I thank you that you are real. And for anybody who's struggling to know that you're real today, I pray that you would show yourself to be so. Thank you that this psalm reminds us of your reality. Thank you that Jesus reminds us of your reality. God, I also thank you that you are perfectly powerful. That you are not tame. You are not weak. That you are powerful. All powerful. And God, for any of us who are struggling to see your power today, or to believe that you're powerful enough to do a work in our lives, or in this broken world, God, help us to see the truth that you are ultimate in power. Help us to worship you, God. And to truly worship you. Increase, even now, our worship of you as we reflect not just on the created world around us, which is awesome, but as we reflect on Jesus and what he's done for us. Thank you, God, for this time. Thank you for this beautiful, beautiful sound. Amen. Amen.